There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Let me begin today's episode by doing something a little unusual. Let me play you a song. Now, I would be shocked if most of our listeners didn't immediately know the song and the artist. That was, of course, Brian Adams, and the song was Summer of 69. Now, Brian Adams is from North Vancouver, British Columbia, and as most of us know, he is also one of the world's most famous rock stars. Summer of 69 is probably one of the most well-known rock songs of all time around the globe. And Brian Adams has a whole host of other hits to boot. But imagine if one day this North Vancouver kid turned into a global rock star, was informed by a music organization in his home country that he was no longer considered Canadian in the eyes of that organization. Now, I don't mean that his passport was rescinded or his citizenship was gone. I mean that the government agency that monitors and controls the playing of Canadian music in Canada no longer considered Brian's material Canadian. Imagine if Brian Adams released an album that became huge internationally and then got no recognition by the governing bodies of music within his home country. In fact, imagine if Brian Adams got snubbed at awards shows on the radio. Well, Brian, being a good Canadian kid, might have a few things to say about it. And Brian's team, and especially his Canadian manager, might make it into an opportunity for further promotion for Brian's supposedly un-Canadian album. Well, this is the story of Season 5, Episode 14 
un-Canadian content, Brian Adams, and the waking up of the neighbors controversy. Today's book recommendation is Canuck Rock, A History of Canadian Popular Music by Ryan Edwardson, published in 2009 by the University of Toronto Press. This is pretty much the go-to academic book to look at the history of music in this country. Now, to understand the controversy surrounding Brian Adams' album, Waking Up the Neighbors, we need to actually go back a few decades. Ever since the advent of radio in the first two decades of the 20th century, Canadian politicians, religious leaders, and social activists had been concerned about the material coming into Canada from the United States. At first, this took the form of fears of American cultural influence watering down Canada's historic cultural connections to Britain. An anxiety rooted in the idea that American mass culture was lowbrow and was having a negative influence on media consumers in Canada, while British culture was far more civilized and appropriate for the average Canadian. By the time we get to the late 1940s, the conversation shifted a little bit. There were still many Canadians concerned about the negative influence that American mass culture was having on Canadians, but more and more Canadians were becoming concerned about the fact that Canadian culture was in fact being overwhelmed and swamped by the far more dominant cultural forms within America. So by the late 1940s, it was clear that America was now the world's military and political superpower, and for many Canadians, America was also becoming the world's cultural superpower. This triggered a fairly intense anxiety over the possible future where cultural products consumed in Canada, be it art, music, radio, the emerging medium of TV, literature, comic books, etc., would simply be American-made and pumped back into Canada by the cultural behemoth that was post-World War II USA. Simply put, politicians and civic leaders began to call for action. They believed that the government needed to do something to protect and even promote Canadian cultural content. This took the form of the Massey Commission. The Massey Commission was called together in 1949 under then-Liberal Prime Minister Louis Saint Laurent with the task of attempting to understand the dramatically changing nature of culture and cultural mediums in Canada while attempting to guide Canada forward in a way that could ensure survival of Canadian cultural content. When the commission finally issued its report in 1951, it was a landmark moment for Canadian culture. The commission recognized that there was indeed a threat to the survival of Canadian cultural content, and it set forth a number of recommendations to both protect Canadian cultural content and promote further creation of Canadian cultural content. 
The Massey Commission very much recognized the powerful influence the U.S. was having on Canadian cultural consumers, and it thus was a report steeped heavily in the simple idea that the government needed to take action in order to ensure Canadian cultural survival. The Massey Commission was an unprecedented moment in Canadian cultural history, as it would lay the foundation for a series of efforts by a variety of Canadian governments seeking to protect and promote Canadian culture. This ranged from academics to literature, art, film, television, and most relevant to this episode, popular music. Now, we need to point out that even with the Massey Commission's findings, pop music or popular music in Canada continued to be almost entirely American-made. Canadian musicians who sought to have a career in music could only do so by making it in the U.S. Early Canadian iconic singers, for instance, like Paul Anka from southern Ontario, moved to the United States and were then repackaged and sold back into Canada as American pop stars. By the 1960s, artists like Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Robbie Robertson and the band, and many others were all moving to the U.S. to make it big in music. Canada was essentially dealing with the equivalent of a musical brain drain. It's important to note here that by the 1960s, the vast majority of popular music played on Canadian radio was American and, to a lesser extent, British. There was simply no serious Canadian music industry in that decade. Most Canadian bands that were able to get radio play did so from their local stations where they had personal relationships with the DJs. So Vancouver bands like The Collectors, which was the earliest incarnation of the famous Canadian rock band Chilliwack, became quite well known on the West Coast for their psychedelic rock, but were almost completely unknown outside of the province. Now, certainly there were exceptions to this rule, the Guess Who being one of the best examples, who, from 1965 onwards, were releasing material being heard across the country. However, the vast majority of music being played on Canadian radio was American-made. The lack of a serious domestic music industry in Canada meant that most serious musicians understood they had to move to the U.S., if they wanted a chance to make it. In 1968, however, things started to change with the Broadcasting Act. There had already been numerous iterations of a Broadcasting Act throughout the 20th century, yet what the 1968 Broadcasting Act did was create the Canadian Radio-Television Commission, Today, it's known as the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, or most commonly known as the CRTC. The CRTC was given a wide jurisdiction over broadcasting and telecommunications within this country. Effectively, it is the government's regulatory agency for anything that falls within these categories. Broadly speaking, its job is to ensure that Canadian programming takes primacy on Canadian airwaves. So in terms of music, and in particular music played on Canadian radio, 
the CRTC was tasked with ensuring that radio plays a significant amount of Canadian-made music. Effectively, the CRTC would now force Canadian radio stations to spin Canadian content. However, the issue for the CRTC was what actually defined Canadian content. Think about a song for a second. You have writers who write the lyrics and the music. You have artists who perform it. You have producers who produce it. You have studios where it's produced. You have a variety of supporting staff who help, like engineers for the song, who mix the song, who master the song, who play on the song. You often have a label that gets the song to radio and puts the money up so the song goes on vinyl or CD or tape or whatever. Simply put, there are innumerable aspects to any song that is heard today or any song that was heard in the late 1960s. For the CRTC, their challenge was to figure out what components of that song or that song process could be evaluated or marked for its Canadianness. As well, the CRTC then had to figure out a balanced and fair percentage of airtime that Canadian radio would have to devote to Canadian-made music. Thus, almost immediately after its creation, the CRTC began extensive public hearings from a variety of sectors to try and find a solution to the issue of Canadian content. And in 1971, that issue was supposedly solved. Well, sort of, as we'll find out. The new Canadian Content Regulations, or CanCon as they became known, were thus... Canadian radio needed to devote 25% of its airplay to Canadian content. What defined Canadian content, you asked? Well, the CRTC devised the ingeniously named MAPLE system. That's right, MAPLE. Now, it's actually spelt M-A-P-L with no E. So here is how the MAPLE system worked. MAPLE stands for Music, Artist, performance lyrics. And broadly speaking, for a song to be considered CanCon eligible, it had to meet two of these categories. So let's try to look a little deeper in terms of music, for instance, the M category. To be Canadian, the music had to be composed entirely, 100%, by a Canadian. For the artist category to qualify, so the A category, the song had to be performed principally by a Canadian citizen. Now, I know that principally is a vague word, and that's going to pose some problems at various times for various bands. For the performance category, to qualify for CanCon, so the P category, the song had to have been recorded in Canada or performed wholly in Canada. The part of this that applies mostly to modern music is the recorded part. Basically, when the song was produced, was it produced at a studio in Canada? The lyric category, so the L, M-A-P-L, meant that the lyrics had to be written primarily by a Canadian citizen. Again, primarily is vague, and this will also pose some problems going forward. So basically... For any song to qualify for CanCon, it had to meet two of these categories, the music, the artist, the performance, or the lyrics. 
So let's look at an example from the time period to get a better sense of what this means. Let me play you a song. So that was Could Have Been a Lady by April Wine. Now, this song was originally written by Errol Brown and Tony Wilson, two British musicians from the band Hot Chocolate. It was released in the UK in 1969 and charted modestly well. So the lyrics and the music category are now out in terms of CanCon eligibility because, of course, the music and lyrics were composed and written by non-Canadians. So that's the M and the L. But we still have, of course, the A, the artist, and the P, performance. So in 1972, a Canadian band called April Wine covered the song on their album On Record and released the track to radio as their lead-off single. So the artists performing the song are Canadian. That gives the song one category, the A. So the final category to go is the performance category. April Wine's version of the song was recorded in Canada by a Canadian producer, the late, great Ralph Murphy. And thus the performance category, the P, falls within CanCon's eligibility. This means that April Wine's cover of Could Have Been a Lady is considered Canadian content because it meets two of the maple categories, the A and the P. The song would thus peak at number two on the Canadian Hot 100 charts and even see top 40 success on the Billboard Hot 100. So there you go. That's the maple system. And that system basically governed what qualified as CanCon and what did not. As well, over the ensuing years, the percentage of CanCon on radio was increased. By the late 1980s, it was at 30%, and today it sits at around 35%, with more and more radio stations having to agree to 40% CanCon. Now, folks, before we continue, just a brief reminder. If you go to our Facebook page or you go to our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive heavily and exclusively on your donations. And every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page and on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy. And we thank you all so much who've donated to this podcast. We can't tell you how much this is helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this program. Now back 
to the show. Okay, let's fast forward to 1991. The Maple system is in full effect. And because of CanCon regulations, Canada is now enjoying a thriving domestic music industry. Canadian radio is playing minimum 30% Canadian content, and sometimes even more, as more and more Canadian bands are finding commercial popularity. This is the year Brian Adams, from North Vancouver, British Columbia, released Waking Up the Neighbors. So let's give a couple of tracks of it a listen, and I'm sure you're going to recognize both of these popular singles off the album. Here is the first track. So that was Can't Stop This Thing We Started. And here's the second track that you probably might recognize. Look into my So that was the track, Everything I Do, I Do It For You. Now, this album was a monster. It peaked at number six on the Billboard charts. And that song, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, became one of Brian Adams' most popular and best-selling singles of all time. It went number one in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. It won him a Grammy and earned him a nomination at the Academy Awards. The song was on the soundtrack for Kevin Costner's movie, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So basically, the album was a smash, a massive commercial and artistic success. So now let's break down the Maple system in regards to the album. We'll start with music and lyrics, because often they're written by the same people. 
Brian co-wrote and co-composed the music and lyrics for every song, along with his music partner and producer, the famous Mutt Lang. Mutt Lang is South African. Every track gives writing and music credit to Adams and Lang. So, a broad 50-50 split on the album. However, some of the songs had other writers on it. For instance, four of the 15 tracks on the album were also co-written with Jim Valance, one of Adams' longtime collaborators and fellow Canadian. This means that four of the songs were written primarily by Canadians. But remember, at that time, the M, the music category, stated the music had to be composed entirely by a Canadian. While it's the case for some of the songs, it's not the case for the album as a whole. So the M category is out It is not CanCon. The album doesn't qualify for the M music category. The lyric category at the time stated that lyrics needed to be written primarily by a Canadian. In some cases on the album, the tracks that Valance writes on, that is true. But in most cases, it's an even split between a Canadian and a non-Canadian. So the primarily designation does not apply. Thus, the lyric category is also non-Canadian. It does not qualify for CanCon. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Okay, are you following along? We got two more categories left, so let's do the performance, the P. The album was recorded primarily at Battery Studios in England, while some of it was recorded at the Warehouse Studio in Vancouver. Nonetheless, the album falls outside of CanCon eligibility in terms of performance because most of it was recorded outside of Canada. So that leaves the only category that qualifies for CanCon, the A, Artist. Adams is Canadian. He was born in Kingston, Ontario, and moved to North Vancouver in 1974 at the age of 15. While Adams lived in several places throughout his life, and when recording Waking Up the Neighbors owned a residence in the United Kingdom, he certainly qualified still as a Canadian citizen, both in the eyes of the government, the eyes of the CRTC, and, of course, within the Maple Regulations. Nonetheless... Despite Brian Adams playing a major, central role in the album in every category and being a Canadian artist, the album as a whole was simply not considered CanCon by the current Maple standards. This sets the stage for the controversy. When the decision by the CRTC deeming it not CanCon was announced, Brian Adams and his Canadian manager Bruce Allen were in an uproar. Granted, 
the publicity over this controversy was going to do wonders for Adams' sales, but nevertheless, the team sought to publicly challenge the Maple Regulations. This is a quote from Brian Adams in regards to the CRTC deeming his album un-Canadian. I quote, If anyone came up to me and asked me for advice, I'd tell them to stay away from the Canadian music business. It's full of politics and bureaucracy. It's trouble. Don't sign to a Canadian company. Don't sign to a Canadian publisher. Go south of the border. You'll get a better deal. I think it's a disgrace and I think it's a shame that we have to deal with this kind of stupidity all the time. Canadian music will prevail regardless of government regulation. The hypocrisy of what happened to me is indicative of how stupid CanCon really is. We don't need the Canadian government to tell people what to play. End quote. These were massive words from a massive Canadian rock star. The problem was, Brian was kind of wrong. The CanCon regulations had indeed helped stimulate the creation of an incredibly successful domestic music industry. Bands like The Tragically Hip and Blue Rodeo were becoming domestic music icons. But not only that, the infrastructure for a domestic music industry had also become successful. Studios, Record labels, publishers, producers, engineers, mixers, etc. All the behind-the-scenes people, jobs, and spaces required to get a song to radio were now in place all across the country. This was because of the requirements of CanCon. Prior to CanCon regulations, for instance, there were only a handful of recording studios in the entire country. By 1991, there were numerous recording studios in every small town across the land. This meant that not only were bands becoming domestic music stars, but Canada was contributing more and more bands and artists to the international music stage. So Tom Cochran, Loverboy, The Crash Test Dummies, Platinum Blonde, Rush, and so many more enjoyed international success with their roots in a Canadian industry whose birth was effectively stimulated by CanCon regulations. Even Brian Adams's early releases benefited greatly from CanCon regulations. Simply put, CanCon worked. And here was Brian Adams saying it was garbage. Now, in the eyes of the Canadian public, Brian Adams was as Canadian as hockey and maple syrup. Thus, the CRTC deeming Brian Adams un-Canadian stirred up significant protest amongst the listening public. Yet, amongst those in the industry, there was considerable frustration at what was being deemed a publicity stunt by Brian Adams and his team. A publicity stunt that could perhaps challenge the entire existence of CanCon, Maple, and the CRTC itself. So we have record label owners, Radio DJs, producers, writers, and artists all across Canada going on the offensive saying how much CanCon played an integral role in not only their ability to get music to the public, but in their survival in the industry. In fact, some industry heads even suggested that Brian Adams should willingly relinquish his CanCon status so that other lesser-known acts could take advantage of it at radio the controversy became even more heated 
when Adams suggested that CanCon was allowing for acts to become successful in Canada, but nowhere else abroad, something he thought, and I quote, was breeding mediocrity. Now, many, many artists rejected this comment about mediocrity, but none more so than the legendary Tom Cochran. In fact, the 1992 Juno Awards would see Cochran face off against Adams in numerous categories. You see, Cochran was riding the success of his massive album, Mad Mad World, which included this epic track. So when it came down to the square-off, the face-off at the 1992 Juno Awards, Tom Cochran won for Songwriter of the Year, Male Vocalist of the Year, Single of the Year, and Album of the Year. Now, Brian Adams was nominated in all of those categories, but Brian Adams didn't go home empty-handed. He won for Producer of the Year, Canadian Entertainer of the Year, and International Achievement Award. However, the final salvo was fired by Tom Cochran when, during one of his last awards, in his speech, he said, there's some incredible music being made in this country. Anyone who says Canadian music is mediocre can go to hell. End quote. You may, by the way, dear listener, be wondering how supposedly un-Canadian content like Adams' Waking Up the Neighbors was eligible for the Juno Awards. Well, this is when it gets really confusing. The Canadian Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences are the ones who operate the Junos, and they do not use the same MAPLE criteria as the CRTC. Now, despite the fact that most of the music industry had openly rejected Adams' calls for scrapping CanCon and denounced his larger assertion that CanCon was creating mediocre music, Adams was successful in getting changes made to the system. In the aftermath of the controversy, the CRTC formed a massive task force representing all facets of the music industry to assess the effectiveness of CanCon regulations, and see if any changes were needed. In the end, there was general agreement that CanCon worked. However, changes were made to Maple, the Maple system, to recognize the fact that more and more Canadians were collaborating with non-Canadians in both the music and lyrics category. Instead of music and lyrics needing to predominantly be written by a Canadian, the new Maple Guidelines allowed for Canadians to have a 50% share in each category in order for it to be CanCon eligible. 
Effectively, it was now a bit easier to collaborate with non-Canadians, but overall, Maple remained effectively untouched. Thus ended the waking up the neighbors controversy. Brian Adams, in the aftermath, moved to England permanently, and for a time he and the Canadian music industry were on non-speaking terms, though. Over the past decade, Brian Adams has re-embraced his home country and the music here. Relations between him and the leaders of the Canadian music industry have once again become cordial. Perhaps his borders themselves are becoming obsolete with new streaming and digital platforms. Brian Adams remains a citizen of the world and a global rock star. But for most Canadians, no matter where they live, visit, or travel to, when they hear that opening riff to Summer of 69, they hear a little piece of Canadian rock music history. I got my first real scene. 